And so even with that, you guys can probably thank me for the gray skies, the rain this morning. I have been praying for a couple of weeks now saying, man, summer is here. It's hot. The boats are in the water. Kids are out of school for three months. Docks are in. Grills are hot. How in the world am I going to preach Job? So I prayed and God answered. We got a little gray sky just to make it seem a little more applicable. Um, I said in the first service a little bit too that I've got a lot. This passage is jam-packed. There's so much stuff in here. And looking at the time, looking at my notes and all that stuff, even before the first service, I was just cutting a bunch of stuff. And I said it felt a lot like when you trim a baby's fingernails where you just want to be really careful that you don't cut the wrong thing. And so... (laughs) Maybe that's a bad example, but <laughs> I don't even have a kid. I've, I've never trimmed a baby's fingernails. <laughs> All right. Um, but the deal with that is, and the reason I say it is, if I cut the wrong thing, I want you to feel free to come up afterwards and say, Brandon, what do you think about this? You never even tackled this part of the passage because there's a lot in there. So let's not waste any more time with silly analogies. Let's dive in. Turn to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. If you're looking for it in your Bible, it is right before the book of Psalms. It's towards the middle, or there's that handy little thing called the table of contents that gives you every page number. Cheat sheet. Job chapter 1. As we look at this, really this is one of those passages where we're introing a new series. We're diving into the wisdom literature. And if you're one of the people who sits out there saying, man, I don't think the Bible really talks about my real life. I read it and it just seems divorced. It doesn't feel like it's feet are on the ground. Get ready because the wisdom literature is so practical, so how-to. We're going to see today um, really one end of the spectrum. This whole summer series is going to go from the side where the sun is shining, all is right in the world, everything is perfect in my life, all the way to I feel just shattered on the rocks and I have no idea how I'm even going to get up tomorrow morning. And that's where we're at. So get ready. We're going to look at the book of Job. Then we're going to go to Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, And then we're going to go to Song of Solomon. So we're going to do suffering pleasure, suffering a different kind of pleasure, if you know your Bible. (laughs) So Job chapter 1, we're going to look at four questions basically coming out of this thing. Four things that um, really rise out. I'm going to do my best mind reading task. I'm going to see if I can pick out the questions that you have and try to answer them. If I don't get to yours, come up afterwards. Job chapter 1, verse 1. I'm not going to have you guys stand because I'm going to talk about each verse a little bit here. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. His man was blameless and upright. He feared God and he shunned evil. He had seven sons, three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and he had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. I wish right now we had more Middle Eastern people in the room. Not just because Middle Eastern people are awesome, but because they understand something in this passage that I don't think we get. The number of livestock is staggering. My wife teaches international students, so most of her students actually right now are Saudi or Iraqi. And most of them have quite a bit of money to be studying here in America, but only a few of them have the kind of money where they possess camels. Camels in that culture, still to this day, they're like furry cars. <laughs> they're very pricey, very pricey. I, uh, 
I think this, okay, let me try to put it in perspective. It's, if you live on the west side, like as far out as Allendale, okay, maybe even further out, picture someone who has 3,000 Jeeps and 3,000 trucks, all right? They've got their work truck. They've got their play truck. By the way, I've got a couple guys in here that said I needed to mention Allendale, so I'm trying to fit it in. Where are you guys at? You said you'd cheer. All right. So Job has 3,000. If you're from the east side of the state, I don't want to leave you guys out, or the east side of town, maybe east town, picture a man who has 3,000 Priuses. (laughs) Job's rich. We'll just say that. Verse 4. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he'd sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. This is like a perfect little family. Parents out there, I want you to imagine, too, that your sons are having a party. They're inviting all their friends. They're ready to celebrate. They even invite their little sisters to come join with it. Like this family is close-knit. They want to hang out together even when they're having all their friends over. And Job, the father heart that just gets up and he sacrifices for his kids. He's so concerned about their salvation. He's so concerned about their purity. I wonder today, when's the last time we've even prayed fervently for a relative's salvation? Prayed fervently for someone's purity Look at the example of Job. We've got a perfect little setup going on here, and I hope you've enjoyed it because it's about to get really dark. Verse 6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. This fits really nicely with 1 Peter, who says that Satan is like a roaring lion, prowling around, seeking who he might devour. And God knows this, and in verse 8, he says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Have you considered him? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Why is Job picked? He's picked because he's righteous. Now, just, I'll probably mention it again later, but just a note here. One question that comes up a lot was, was Job sinless? The Bible makes it really clear that there was only one person in all of human history that was sinless, and that was Jesus Christ. This term blameless is used of several Old Testament characters that we know were sinful. It's used in the New Testament to speak about an elder being blameless. What it means is basically you can't make an an attack against this guy's character. He lives what he believes, and compared to everyone else, he's virtually blameless. Verse 9. Here's Satan's response. Does Job fear God for nothing, he replied? Have you not put a hedge around his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds have spread throughout the land. But now, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he'll surely curse you to your face. What Satan is doing, I've heard it described this way, is he's accusing Job of being a mercenary, a worshiper for hire, A guy who only seeks God because of the benefit that comes out of it. He's just putting in his day's labor because he enjoys all the oxen. He enjoys all the benefits of God. And God says, okay, I'm game. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. And then Satan departed from the presence of God. Notice who's in charge here even with this. Satan has to listen 
to God. Satan's a big figure, but in Job, in the first two chapters, he's prominent, and then he disappears from the story. God is sovereign, and he's huge, and Satan can't even compare to him. Verse 13, one day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking at the oldest brother's home, a messenger came to Job and said the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby. And the Sabaeans, they attacked Job and they made off with all of them. They put your servants to the sword. They killed us all. And I'm the only one who survived to tell you this. That same thing happens again in verse 16 with the sheep. And then again immediately in verse 17 with those precious camels. And then we get this. Well, he's still speaking, verse 18. While the words are still on that servant's lips, yet another messenger came and he said, your sons and daughters, Job, they were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house. You know this. But suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert. And I don't know how, Job, but it struck all four corners of the house at the same time and it collapsed. They're all dead. I know you wish that they were here instead of me, but I'm the only one, Job, that survived to tell you this. Just like that, Job's financially decimated. And his family, his lineage, his, his legacy, his children, his sons and daughters that he loved are gone in the blink of an eye. At this, Job got up, he tore his robe, and he shaved his head. He, he doesn't come into church and basically let everyone know, how you doing, Job? Pretty good today. He doesn't play any games. He shaves his head. He tears his robe. He wants everyone to know he's in misery. Things aren't going right in his world, and he wants the community to know. And then the amazingness of the response. And then he fell to the ground in worship. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord took away. May his name, may the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. The dude is decimated. Everything in the world that he owns and that he loves is gone, and his response is to worship. You see, Job's trust, his life was not wrapped up in stuff. His life was wrapped up in the only thing that couldn't be taken from him. And I want to ask you guys today, where's your life in? What if it was taken from you would cause you to be bitter and angry rather than worshipful? What are you living for? You came into this world naked and empty-handed, and I guarantee that's how you're going to go out to. And Job gets that. So here's the first question coming out of this. When was Job written, and who's Job? Okay, I cheated. That's two questions. I know it. I'm not counting it as one of my four. I bet, and actually, even with this question, if there was a hundred of you guys that I polled and I asked you, what's your question reading this? Probably none of us would say, when is this written, and who's Job? But if we don't answer that question... We might as well hold up our ears and start listening because you're going to hear a faint scream in the distance arising from Oxford, England, as Neil shouts out, have I taught you nothing? (laughs) He'll probably do that much nicer tone and with a sweet, cute little British accent. But that's one of the big gifts that he gave us is in three years he drilled in over and over again. And really it's the same thing that Rod's drilled in since day one. That when we drop into a text, we have to first ask, where are we in the biblical story? 
Where are we in terms of God redeeming his special people to his special place? Where are we? Because if we don't know that, we're in danger of misinterpreting this. So where are we today? When's this written? I have no idea. I was hoping you'd answer that. That was a question. Um, Scholars really don't know. And the reason is that none of the monuments that we look for The big moments in history that are mentioned that we can say, oh, that happened after that. All of the big elements of Israel's history, the things that the Jews are so proud of, and they mention in every book of the Bible, the the call of Abraham, Moses parting the Red Sea, entering of the land of Canaan, Adam Sandler's first movie, all those big movies or all those big moments in Jewish history are absent from this passage. So when is this thing written? I don't know. People point to the Hebrew and they say, oh, it's really old Hebrew. Others then come in and they say, no, it's just written to look like old Hebrew so that you know they're talking about someone from the past. There's about five different ways that we look at this book and we say, we don't know how to date it. If you want to know them, come talk to me afterwards. I'm not going to give them all right now. So when is Job written? I don't know. Who is Job? I don't know either. But the thing is that the author gives us everything that we need to know about Job. Look at verse 3. The first part, he's rich. Look at the second part of that verse. What does it say? Last sentence. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. We know that he's successful. We know that he's respected. If you flip over to chapter 29, I won't read it, but you're free to read it while I keep talking. Verse 7 It starts, and Job basically just says, I'm so respected that when I'd walk into a room, a hush would fall over everyone. People would stand to their feet. The princes and and the elders of the city, they wouldn't speak until they heard me speak first. Job is respected in his community. He's rich. He's successful. He's respected. Verse 1 makes it clear that he's righteous and upright. And more than that, In the same way, we know something else about Job. In the same way that you don't find out what a team really is, who they are as a team during practice, you find out during the game. And we know who Job is because when everything is stripped away from him and there's nothing else and he's in the pit of suffering, we get to see his heart. We get to see what remains when everything else is pulled back. So we know a little bit of who Job is. We know enough to go on. But I think there's a real beauty in not knowing exactly when this is, not knowing exactly who Job is, because what it communicates is that he could be any one of us. Any one of us here today, maybe in the best form of ourselves, we could be Job. And even the book itself has this unique element of so much of the Bible is like corporate. It's so much more about we than it is about me. And yet Job is this book that's all about the individual. It's all about this guy and how he wrestled with and experienced suffering. And it's right there for us. So if that first question of who and when Job is kind of a a lame one because I really didn't answer it. Maybe it's like hitting a slow pitch softball. It's just kind of an easy one. This next question is like trying to hit a piece of gravel with a chopstick. All right. This is hard. I'm going to take it up a little notch here. The big question most of us, I think, are asking when we read passages of scripture like this, is why in the world does God allow evil and suffering? Why does he allow it to go on? Why do we have to live with pain and torment in this world? 
And really, does, does evil disprove God? For generations and generations, this question has been asked. It's really the question of Job. Why is suffering go on? But it's the question of today too. So why not just blame Satan? Verse 9, look at it with me. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Skip to verse 11. But now, God, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to, his, to your face. This is Satan's plan. It's not God's. Lord said to Satan, very well, everything you has is in your power, Satan. But on the man himself, you must not lay a finger. And then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. See? Satan's the guilty one. Problem of evil is solved. That's a cop-out. It's a cop-out. If Satan is the soldier on the field doing the killing, God is the general that allows the mission to take place. Does that bother you? It bothers me. Does it make you uncomfortable? If God doesn't make you uncomfortable sometimes, I'm not sure that you're really worshiping the God of the Bible. When we read passages of Scripture like this, or go into Jericho and slaughter every man, woman, and child, it should make us a little uncomfortable. So let me try to step into this a little bit. Let me try to answer first from a head capacity. What's the head question here? Get into a little philosophy with you guys. And then the heart question. I want to try to answer in a room this size. I know we've got a lot of skeptics, but I also know that we've got a lot of sufferers. I know people who are losing the home that they've lived in for the last decades, last several decades, who their children grew up there. I know people who are stepping into immense pain from things that they witnessed that if I were to say them out loud, it'd kind of like turn our stomach because they're so graphic and they saw them with their eyes and they can't get them out of their mind. There's immense suffering and pain. I know of marriages that are on the rocks. So I want to answer this first for the skeptic. If that's you and you're in the pit and you're suffering and you feel like Job today, know that this philosophical answer probably is not going to do much for you. We'll get to the heart. But this is where I think that the church sometimes has failed is this argument that evil disproves God is said all the time over and over again. I heard it in college dozens of times. I heard it in seminary. I wrote books on it. I hear it on the street. I hear it. Even one of the students in the youth group within the last month asked, does the Holocaust disprove God? How could God allow that if he's real? How would you answer that student? Do you know how to answer that question? Have you thought it through yourself? The crazy thing is, I think the church has really failed. I say this all the time. There are very good questions against the Bible. There are very good questions against the existence of God. I think there are better answers. I know there are better answers, but there's good questions. And if we never talk about the answers, then we have students who go off to college and they hear the question for the first time and they think, man, the church must have no answer for this because I've never heard it talked about. So today I want to step into that just a little bit. I want us to, to feel what it's like to wrestle with the difficult questions. I want to give you just one example. This question of evil disproving the existence of God has been disproven. Atheists don't even use it anymore. Skeptics really, when they're in the intellectual circles, they've abandoned this thing. It's still said in college classrooms, but it's been solved and it's been proven by Christianity that it doesn't hold water. But again, do we know how to answer it? 
Let me give you one example, one way to answer it. This comes from a guy named Alvin Plantinga. Alvin Plantinga is not, some people I'm sure are wondering the question, is that the dude who taught at Calvin for a lot of years? That's Neil Plantinga. It's his brother, so you're really close. Um, Neil Plantinga taught there. This is Alvin. He wrote a little book called God, Freedom, and Evil that you can pick up for like three bucks, and it's a great read. But this is his argument. Now, before you go run two miles, you wouldn't do that without stretching. And you don't step into an Alvin Plantinga uh, argument without doing a little mental stretching. So I've got some mental stretching for us. Are we ready? Yeah? Mental stretching. Okay. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to flash a math equation up there. I want to see who can be the first person. Don't worry about it, Erin. You got this. She just graduated. She's like, I was done. (laughs) Um, First person to yell it out, I want to hear it. I I don't have a prize. I'm sorry. But you don't have to beat that person. And thank goodness, because Randy Heckman's sitting right there, and he's dialed in already. I can see it. You just have to beat your neighbor. So challenge your neighbor to it here, all right? First question. I heard, whoa, Aaron actually was one of the first there. 288, good job. All right, next question, getting a little harder. Who said that one over here? Come on, 195, fast. I also, as soon as multiplication went on the screen, I watched about half of you just say, <laughs> All right, here we go. Next one. <laughs> Alex in the front, 60. Now, if you got an answer different than 60, it's because you didn't remember PEMDAS. Parentheses, exponents, multiplication, division, addition, subtraction. Yeah? You guys remember? It's coming back to you? Some of you, it's been a number of years. All right. Last one. Someone, I know someone right there is just thinking like, I had it. Come on. I was just taking the two. No. All right. So are we feeling stretched out? Feeling ready to go? Ready for a little Alvin Plantinga? Some of you guys, yeah, you're feeling exhausted already. Like, nope, spent, spent my whole mental capacity on a couple questions there. Here is Alvin Plantinga's summarization of the problem of evil. Go ahead and throw it up there. An all-good God would not want evil to exist. He would want what's best for us. He would want good for us because he's all good. Thus, an all-knowing and all-powerful God would eradicate evil and suffering. Second, evil and suffering still exist. You can't turn on the nightly news without being confronted with evil and suffering in this world. It's still very much present. Number three, thus, an all-knowing, all-good, all-powerful God cannot exist. And the claim is made, we just disproved the God of the Bible. What the argument goes is that if God is all-knowing, then he sees the evil. And if he sees it and he doesn't take care of it, then he's either unable to take care of it because he's not all-powerful, or he doesn't care or doesn't want to take care of it because he's not all-good. So what you're left with is God can be two of the three, but not all three. So he's either ignorant, indifferent, or impotent. He's either ignorant, indifferent, or impotent. And so that's kind of what's going on right here. 
That's the argument. I don't wonder, when you look at that, I mean, it makes some logical sense. What are your thoughts? Are you tracking with that argument? Or is there something in there that sticks out and you say, I've got a little problem with something. Because when I read the first one, I've got a big problem. The problem that I have with the first one is that there's so much arrogance baked into it. There's so much arrogance that says, you know what? I know what God would want to do and what he would need to do. And because I know what he would need to do and want to do, I can put him in this box and say, that's absolutely what he should do. And Alvin Plantinga picks up on this thing. And he says this, basically, given our limited and finite minds, given the fact that we're smart, sure, we have reason, but we're not that smart. We have limitations. Do you think it's at all entirely possible that God has a reason for suffering that we can't think about, that we can't comprehend, that we don't know about? Is it possible? Plantinga kind of mocks the skeptic and basically he speaks for him and says, if I can't think about a reason why God wouldn't want evil to be around or why God would allow evil to be around, then it doesn't exist. There is no reason. Anytime, seriously guys, anytime that we have a God that we are as smart as or smarter than, we really don't have a God at all, do we? And it gets a lot worse because look at what the argument's based on. An all-knowing, an omnipotent God who knows everything and anything. And if God knows everything and he knows anything, do you think there's a chance that he's thought about something that we haven't thought about? Do you think there's a chance that your 120, 140, I don't care, 180 IQ can't quite think at the same level as God? You don't have all the pieces in place that he's got. Think about how God answers Job. When God answers Job's question, Job just keeps saying, why God, why God, why? He even accuses God of being unjust to cause him to suffer. When God answers his, his question, he answers it a lot like this. He could have said, Job, you know what, dude? I know you're really suffering, but here's the deal. Millions of people are going to read about your struggles. Millions of people are going to wrestle through everything that you've suffered, and they're going to be comforted. And they're going to be challenged. And they're going to see me more clearly. And they're going to realize I'm not alone. Other people have suffered. And so Job, even 2,000 years later, there's going to be a church called Crossroads Bible Church, or thousands of years later, not 2,000. And they're going to be preaching on your life for their summer series. God could have answered that. There's a whole lot more good than bad here, Job. Take one for the team. There's a lot of people that are going to be benefited. The good of the many outweighs the good of the one. But Job doesn't hear that from God. God gives a totally different response. He gives a response much like what we're talking about. And in chapter 38, you can read it. I don't have time to read it all. It is amazing. It goes on and on. But God basically says, all right, Job, you've got that question for me. Let me ask you a question first. If you can answer my question, I'll answer yours. Job, where were you when I put the earth on its foundation? Job, where were you when I told the sea, you can come this far, this far, keep coming, keep coming, stop right there. That's far enough. You can't go any further than that. Where were you when I told the constellations to move through the sky just like that? Job, answer my question. Where were you? What he's saying is I'm a whole lot bigger than you think I am. Job, I'm a whole lot bigger than you are, bro. By the way, that's the, the sign in my house that I'm in trouble. 
is when my wife ends any sentence with bro. Like, you left your clothes out again, bro. I know I'm in trouble. It doesn't say it in your Bible, but I'm pretty sure it's there. God ends that, who are you, bro? God's saying, I'm infinite. And if you have a God who's infinite and he's big enough that you can be mad at him for not allowing, suffer, for allowing suffering and evil, then you also have a God that's infinite enough that you have to acknowledge he might have thought of something that you didn't think about. And just with that, the argument that God cannot exist because of evil is defeated. But then maybe you're asking, well, why then did Job specifically have to suffer? Why did Job have to go through all of this stuff? Here's where I really wish I had more time. This is one of the fingernails that got clipped. I've got a, a triangle. Sounds exciting, right? Um, I've got a triangle, a little graphic that basically maps out all of the book of Job. I use it when I counsel. I use it all the time. I love it. But if I were to show it up there right now, we'd be here till 4.30. So I will spare you of the triangle. If you want to know about it, come up and talk to me afterwards. People did in the first service. So let me just really boil it down. Why does Job suffer? In short, in a word, sin. Job suffers because of sin. We live in a broken world. It's marred by the fall. God created a world. The Bible begins with a world where there was no evil, no suffering, no pain, no tears. And the Bible ends where there's no tears, no pain, no evil, and no suffering, the part in the middle, that's on us. That's where we chose to open the door and say, evil, come on in. And through sin and rebellion, we, we tainted God's perfect creation. Now, I want to be really careful when I say that the reason Job sins or suffers is because of sin, because Although it's really true, we say it all the time, Rod says it all the time, you choose to sin, you choose to suffer. That's fully true. If right now, tonight, I decide, you know what, I want to give in to my kleptomaniac ways, and I want to break into Steve Van Poolen's house, and I want to go to some of his treasured possessions, I'm going to go to his closet, and I want to steal his vast, vast collection of assorted collared golf shirts. <laughs> We've all seen them, right? Uh, I'm facing the consequences. I'm also choosing that Steve might just come after me. He might break into my house, go to my closet, and find my vast, vast, and really lame collection of zip-up hoodies. <laughs> or Steve might just smack me with his nine iron. <laughs> By the way, my wife right there almost amened because she wants me to get rid of those hoodies so bad. <laughs> Someone steal them, I promise. She'd, she'd open the door for you. You choose to sin, you choose to suffer, is absolutely true. But the problem is, not all suffering comes as a result of personal sin. I had a relative who was passing away from a terminal disease. And they were in the hospital in their last hours, last days, and a church came to visit. And you think, oh, that's really sweet, that's really nice. I agree. But one of the things that they communicated with this relative was that the reason why they were sick, the reason why they were dying was because of sin in their life. And if they repented, God would heal them. And then they went so far as to say, in fact, you need to accept Christ because if you were a Christian, there's no way that you could have cancer. 
And so my relatives sat there on their deathbed wrestling through, am I really saved or not? Guys, not all suffering comes as a result of personal sin. My relative did not die because of a lack of personal holiness. They died because of the fall. We suffer always because of sin, capital S. We suffer sometimes because of sin, lowercase s. I'll say that again. I know it's grammatical. We always suffer. All suffering is rooted in sin, capital S. Sometimes we suffer because of sin, lowercase s. Problem is, I think Job's suffering is so distasteful to us. It's so bothersome to us. Because really, if you're like me, we're prideful. And we're entitled. And we think God somehow owes us, maybe not blessing, but at least the absence of turmoil and trouble. At least the absence of suffering. That's for those bad people. But us, we should, we should be spared from that. And we live entitled lives. What I want to tell you very clearly is that what we deserve is hell. Romans 3.23 makes it really clear that all, every one of us in this room have sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. Isaiah 64 says that even our righteousness is like filthy rags. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin, what we've earned, the product of our labor, the fruit, is death. It's hell. It's separation from God. We ruined his creation. We deserve to be removed from him and it. But the gift, not the wages, the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. Guys, our, every blessing in your life is pure grace. Every moment in this world is pure grace. I remember a fiery young preacher preaching, and I'm pretty sure it was Derek Tages. And he said, the question isn't, how could God allow this evil in my life? The question is, how could an infinite God who knows my mind and every thought I've ever thought, who knows my heart and what's in there, even allow me to take another breath. Life is not about us. It's about God. This world is not centered around us. It's centered around him and his glory. So honest question right now, are you living for Christ or are you living for comfort? Are you living your life to try to minimize all suffering? First Peter 2 says that we're called to suffer. Not that it's a bad thing to try to, you know, make sure that you don't needlessly step into it. But are you living your life centered around Christ and his commands? Or are you living it around making sure that you're comfortable? Now, all this stuff is good, but to tell people about planting is argument when they're in the middle of the pit and when they're in the middle of suffering and they feel like they can't even get up in the morning, it would almost be cruel. The question of the skeptic is very different than the question of the sufferer, so I want to step into that for a minute. I want to ask, what's the heart question? Oftentimes when a person is suffering, the immediate question is, why, why, God, is this going on? Why are you letting this happen? And then we try to answer it with, you know, like, well, there's, there's all this good that's coming up out of it. And, and so maybe the good outweighs the bad. And so really God is still trustworthy because there's more good than bad here. And I want to tell you something really clearly. Christianity has got something so much better than that to answer the sufferer. You got to start answering the question that's really being asked. I had a, 
a time in Chicago, and I remember working with a youth group there, and there was a kid who was asking all these really deep theological questions, and he threw out his first one, and I answered it, and I was like, yeah, I think I nailed that one. All right, I gave him an answer. And I looked at him, and he didn't care one bit about the answer. He just switched questions to another one, and he flew right to it. And so I began to sit back and kind of watch him, and other people started answering these questions, and I looked, and I saw the same thing. He didn't care one bit about the answers. There was something else that wasn't being touched that was really bothering him. And so I started to ask heart questions. And this kid broke, and the tears streamed down his face. And basically what it came down to was that he had a father who was very religious, who claimed to be touched by grace, but a father who lived a graceless life and wanted nothing to do with his son. But he liked to debate theology. And so he just wanted some ammunition to be able to get a little time with his dad. So what is the question that the sufferer asks? What's the question underneath? What's the question that their heart wants to know? My guess, if you're like me, for most of us, is we want to say, God, who are you to allow all this? What's your character? And deeper than that, underneath that is the question, can I really trust God? Can I really trust you, God, in light of what I'm experiencing? In light of all of this that seems to say that I can't, can I trust you, God? Are you really who you say you are? Christianity has a better answer to this than any other religion. If you're an atheist, a secularist, a naturalist, a scientist, I don't care. Most of them come to the conclusion of like, well, your suffering is random. It's probability. It's pure chance. It just happened. I'm sorry. And you're left feeling like there's no meaning to any of this. If you're a pluralist and you believe in multiple gods, then you come to the conclusion of, well, maybe one god is mad at another god and they're punishing that god by hurting me. And what you're left with is gods who are much more like men and they're evil and they're not trustworthy and they're punitive and have no regard for us. If you're a Muslim, then maybe you come to the conclusion more than likely that just if Allah wills it, Allah wills it. And what you're left with is a god who's sovereign, but he's very detached and separate. But what you see in the Bible, what you see in Job right here is something totally different. We have it in the very first sentence, the very first couple of sentences right there when Job in verse 4 starts priesting for his kids. He starts offering sacrifices on their behalf to make sure that they're forgiven. And that should cue us, if you've been around Crossroads long enough, that Job is actually pointing us to someone bigger than him, an ultimate Job. In fact, the book starts and it ends, it's bookended with Job making sacrifices for the forgiveness of other people's sins. This sufferer making sacrifices... And I don't know if that's ringing bells for you at all, but centuries later, Job is in the spot where he's chosen to suffer because of his righteousness. And through that suffering, mankind, or or through that suffering, Satan will be defeated. So he's chosen to suffer because he's righteous, and through his suffering, somehow Satan is defeated. It sounds an awful lot like centuries later when Jesus the ultimate righteous sufferer, the ultimate innocent sufferer, lives a pure, perfect, spotless life. And he comes down to this world and he suffers and defeats Satan on the cross. And when he does, he defeats evil in a way where he says, you know what, I'm coming back, I'm able now. You guys can be forgiven and you'll be with me for all eternity and there's gonna be a time for this evil right now. And I know you're suffering and you're going through it right now, but it's limited 
And we go to passages now like 2 Corinthians 4, where it says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. He's saying, wait for it. And we read at the end of Scripture, we see that the old heaven, or there's a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth, with all its evil, with all its suffering, with all its pain, it is no more. And the sea... The abyss, sin, it's gone. And we'll see new Jerusalem coming down out of the clouds, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and a loud voice from the throne crying, the dwelling place of God is with man. He's going to live with us. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and he will be their God. And he's going to wipe away every tear from every eye. There will be no more pain. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more evil. So how do you know if you can trust God? You look at the biblical story. We screwed it up. We brought sin and evil into his perfect world. And God should have wiped us out right then. That's what he should have done. He should have removed us and said, you guys are unworthy from it. But instead, God comes down. And when we're in the chaos and we're swirling around in it, he comes down and he enters it. And he knows what it's like to feel betrayal. He knows what it feels like to be lost or to feel lost, to be um, abandoned, to experience physical pain and agony. He knows what it's like to feel shame and be publicly executed. We have a God who we can approach with confidence because he's well acquainted with suffering. When you're in the pit and you say, God, can I trust you? He says, I wouldn't ask you to go through anything I wasn't willing to go through. Job, I know you're going through a lot. I will go through even more so that I can be with you for all of eternity. Does that comfort you? And let me ask you this. If you're not in the pit right now, what's your life built on? What are you doing to prepare for the pit? Where is life found? Because Job loses everything in an instant and he still has life and he still worships and he still praises. Is your life in your marriage? I've seen healthy marriages just dissolve. I've seen spouses pass away long before they should have. Is it in your kids? Look at Job, he loses them in an instant. Is it in your success and your wealth? Do we, need, we just went through the recession. Do we need a Great Depression to teach us that your stock portfolio can be gone like that? What are you clinging to that can never be taken from you? If your hope isn't an unchangeable God who doesn't change, he's a rock then your foundation is like sinking sand. It's just shifting, and when the waves come, you'll be washed out. And thank goodness that he's a rock and he's unchanging, but he's also the God who knows suffering, and he came down and he suffered. He took the full, the most dreadful thing, the full wrath of God upon himself so that we never would have to have it. Let's pray to him now. God, you are sovereign and you are mighty, but you are compassionate and you are loving and you are gracious and you are willing to come down and to suffer so that our time of suffering would be limited. God, I pray that you would give hope to the people who need that right now, that they could find you to be trustworthy and someone that they could run to. And I pray right now that you would be 
with those of us who aren't in the storm, just preparing us, pruning it out like Job to where if everything gets stripped from us, we still have everything because we have you. Help us to cling to you, God. In Jesus' precious and holy name, amen.